0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Ben, it's bright and sunny for once on this weekend. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, it's, I think this is the first sun we've had in a couple of days. It's mostly been pretty rainy. I'm doing good.
0: Yeah, good. What are we watching today?
1: Today, Sarah, we are watching The Ghost Ship from 1943.
0: Interesting. I think the only other, like, blank ship show we've had was on Torture Ship?
1: Yeah, which is the third lowest ranked movie on the list.
0: So, nowhere to go but up, basically. Right,
1: yeah. There's, there's a very low bar to clear to be the best horror movie on a boat.
0: Yeah. I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat!
1: Everybody look at me, cause I'm sailing on a boat! Our story this time begins with the 1939 RKO adventure film Pacific Liner, directed by Lou Landers.
0: We just had a movie from Lou Landers, didn't we?
1: Yes, that was Return of the Vampire.
0: The Return of the Vampire.
1: Thank you. So Pacific Liner was set aboard a passenger liner that was stricken with disease. And for the film, a full-size steamship set was constructed with interior rooms, a deck, and an exterior section with gangplanks so you could show people, like, boarding the ship. Uh, this was, of course, back in the days when Arkeo was still spending money as mm-hmm. opposed to making money. <laughs> so they ended up with this big ship set. Now, the movie had been... A financial success, uh, Pacific Liner grossed $508,000 at the box office, but uh, the ship set was of course very expensive, so it was retained for potential use in future productions. Fast forward to May 12th, 1943. The Leopard Man has just opened, and Val Luton is midway through shooting The 7th Victim the intended follow-up to 7th Victim was going to be Curse of the Cat People, Mm. a sequel to Luton's first big hit for RKO. But RKO had to announce that the sequel would be delayed when the schedules for the necessary returning actors couldn't be worked out to get them to shoot right after 7th Victim was done. So RKO chief Charles Kerner did not want Luton to be inactive in the gap between the end of production on Seventh Victim and the start of production on the new delayed start for Curse of the Cat People. So he instructed the producer to create a script that would utilize the ship set from Pacific Liner. The title would be Ghost Ship, and Luton would be given his standard budget of $150,000. Okay. So, so no vacation. No vacation.
0: No vacation. I, I had wondered, given that like we went a few episodes in a row with KO mm. pictures, and then suddenly nothing. And I would argue Luton has definitely earned a vacation, but it shall not come yet.
1: No. So Luton developed the story idea himself, and then he hired Leo Mittler to write a treatment from which Donald Henderson-Clark wrote the screenplay. Mittler was a German silent film director who had fled the country following the rise of the Nazis to power and was largely retired from the film industry at this point when Luton approached him to write The Treatment.
0: Why do you think he went to someone who is fairly retired?
1: I would guess that Luton was probably familiar with his silent film work and just admired it and knew he could get him generally cheap because he was kind of out of the business. Sure. Now, Donald Henderson-Clark, who wrote the full screenplay, was actually more of a novelist, uh, primarily known for the romance genre. Uh, his novels, Millie and Millie's Daughter, were both adapted into films, um, as were a few of his other uh, novels.
0: Also a weird choice.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. Probably, again, someone that Luton knew from like his days as like a pulp writer, I would have to guess.
0: Well, maybe Luton went to these people because he... Knew they needed some work or something, and he's trying to help them out. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, as with all of his films, Luton wrote the final draft himself, uncredited. Mark Robeson once again directs, returning from Seventh Victim. Also returning from that film are cinematographer Nicholas Musaraka, art directors Albert D'Agostino and Walt Keller, composer Roy Webb, and editor John Lockhart. So it's, it's basically the whole team.
0: Not happy about this editor, but that's fine.
1: The film's lead actor is Richard Dix who was on contract with RKO at the time, and was basically, like, burning through quick B-movies in an attempt to get his contract over with. Oh. Um, Ghost Ship was his last RKO movie, so he achieved that objective.
0: Why was he trying to burn through his contract?
1: This will make sense more in, like, the context of his career, I guess. So Okay, okay. Uh, so Richard Dix was born Ernst Carlton Brimmer in Minnesota in 1893 which means he was 50 years old when he made this film. Dix originally studied to be a surgeon, but he also excelled in drama and sports while at school. So, leaving university, he went into acting, first in New York and later Los Angeles. After getting a contract with Paramount Pictures, he changed his name to Robert Dix and began appearing in westerns primarily, but dozens of other films starting in 1917. Uh, He successfully transitioned... To sound films and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in 1931's Cimarron from RKO which won Best Picture.
0: Good for him.
1: Yeah he continued making movies through the 30s and 40s but by the 40s um, his career had kind of wound down mostly due to his age and so he was no longer getting like top roles and the kind of roles he felt he deserved from RKO um, which was part of why he was trying to get out of his contract. Uh now from nineteen forty-four to nineteen forty-seven, he appeared in seven films in Columbia's The Whistler series of Film Noir Mysteries. He then passed away in nineteen forty-nine from a heart attack brought on by years of alcoholism.
0: And probably making seven movies in three years.
1: <laughs> mm. Now, since the story of the ghost ship is set aboard a merchant freighter, it is largely bereft of the strong female presence that we find in other Val Luton films. Uh, the one female character is played by Edith Barrett, who we last saw as Mrs. Rand in I Walk With a Zombie.
0: Mm-hmm. She was really good in that role.
1: Other returning Val Luton actors include Ben Bard, who we saw in The Leopard Man and the Seventh Victim, and Sir Lancelot from I Walked With a Zombie. Making his debut in a major role is Skelton Barnaby Nags.
0: Skelton? That's, that's great for a movie called Ghost Ship.
1: Mm-hmm. Born in 1911 in the UK and trained as a Shakespearean actor at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, he moved to LA and found work mostly as a character actor due to his distinctive appearance and voice, though he was often uncredited in the films he appeared in. In addition to multiple horror roles, he also often played parts in film noirs and made two appearances in the Dick Tracy movies of the 1940s. He passed away of cirrhosis of the liver in 1955 due to alcoholism. Also uncredited in a minor role, making his film debut, is future film noir star Lawrence Tierney, born in Brooklyn in 1919 Tierney was a star athlete in school, but quit college and became a laborer, and then later a model for the Sears Roebuck catalog.
0: Good. Yeah. You know, you're a construction worker, you're building up the muscles, and you transition into modeling. Mm -hmm.
1: I love it. His uh, manager suggested that he go into acting, so he started appearing on stage in New York, where he was spotted by an RKO talent scout and signed to a contract. He was cast by Luton in the film after the producer recognized him from the Sears robot catalog, which Luton ordered from frequently because Luton thought that ordering things for himself from a catalog was like getting a present from himself because he would forget about it by the time it (laughs) arrived.
0: (laughs) So probably was just like, oh neat, it's the guy. Cool, you can have a part in my movie.
1: Exactly. Tierney's breakout role would be as the title character in 1945's Dillinger about the famous bank robber. He would play tough guys, villains, and criminals throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and his own violent temper got the better of him as he would be jailed multiple times over his life for drunken brawls and violent assaults. His acting career would sort of take a hit due to his reputation as dangerous and volatile. In the 1980s, he had a comeback as an older character actor, but largely still playing dangerous tough guys on shows like Hill Street Blues, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Uh, also as Elaine's father on Seinfeld, uh, where everyone loved his performance and wanted him to be a recurring character, but the crew found him so terrifying that they never invited him back.
0: Oh, no. He,
1: like, stole a knife from the set and later, like, threatened Jerry Seinfeld with it. Oh, my
0: God. (laughs) That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Modern audiences likely know Tierney best as crime boss Joe Cabot in Reservoir Dogs where he terrorized director Quentin Tarantino, uh, doing things like shoving him over (laughs) um, when he didn't get his way, uh, and also terrorizing the rest of the cast, largely because of his anger at shooting the long, hot, and humid warehouse scenes. Yeah. He died of pneumonia in 2002 at age 82. Wow. Filming for The Ghost Ship began on August 3rd, 1943. Luton and Robeson planned the film meticulously to avoid any production delays so that they would not miss the window they had to start shooting Curse of the Cat People, which would begin filming on August 26th, 1943. Ever one for research and authenticity, Luton hired Dr. Jaron Criswell, pastor of the Fifth Avenue Spiritualist Church of New York and noted psychic to serve as the film's technical consultant on supernatural and psychic phenomena.
0: Oh my god.
1: What Luton did not know is that Dr. Jaron Criswell was actually Jaron Criswell Koenig, a.k.a. Jaron Criswell King, a.k.a. Jaron King Criswell, a.k.a. Charles Criswell King, former... New York Broadway actor, uh, who was not in any way a pastor, and that church doesn't exist, who would eventually gain fame in L.A. as the amazing Criswell, making predictions about the future on L.A. radio broadcasts in infomercials that he bought in order to promote Criswell Family Vitamins. The popularity of these radio spots would lead to the Criswell Predicts television show on local L.A. TV, which would lead to his friendship with local TV host Vampira and their appearances in the Ed Wood films Plan 9 from Outer Space and The Night of the Ghouls.
0: Amazing. What the heck? What the heck is L.A., Ben?
1: <laughs> the land of dreams. <laughs> the ghost ship was released Christmas Eve, 1943.
0: <laughs> Great time. Actually, there is, like, a tradition of releasing horror movies during, like, the holidays. Well,
1: Christmas is traditionally a time for telling ghost stories.
0: Yeah, fair. I guess, okay, yeah, ghost ship. Okay.
1: It initially was quite successful at the box office, although it received a mixed critical response. uh, Most praise coming in for the script and the atmosphere. However, in February 1944, RKO and Luton would be sued for plagiarism, By Samuel R. Golding and Norbert Faulkner, who claimed that Ghost Ship was based on their 1942 play, The Man and His Shadow. The play was not published or copyrighted, but it had been performed by the Pasadena Playhouse in December of 1942. The play is set aboard a passenger liner with many non-sailor characters where a passenger suspects the captain is a murderer but can do nothing about it due to the authority that the captain holds on ship during the cruise. The playwrights submitted it to Luton for consideration when they heard he was looking for a story set aboard ship. RKO retained a copy of the play for six weeks before returning it unsold to the writers. Luton disputed that any plagiarism took place, and so the suit went to court. RKO withdrew the film from theatrical release due to the lawsuit, and in August 1950, the courts ruled against Luton and RKO after jurors read the play and screened the film and concluded that while the ghost ship had many differences, such as being set aboard a merchant freighter instead of a passenger liner, the central core dynamic of the drama was similar enough to warrant ruling in the plaintiff's favor. RKO paid $25,000 in damages to the playwrights and also lost the rights to re-release the film, sell it to TV, etc. as the rights to the film went to the authors. Luton, who was highly distressed by this result, fell into a major depression.
0: Mm-hmm. With how he is about credit for writers, I think like he would start to doubt like his own belief like, did I accidentally
1: Well do and, this? and and you know, subconscious plagiarism is also a thing, right? Yeah. Like if you get submitted a story for consideration and you know and you, you read it and you think, nah, that's not really what I'm looking for and you give it back and then, you know, you're you're trying to come up with an idea for a story, and then you're like, Oh man, this is a good idea and you just think that you came up with it, but it was actually bouncing around your head from this other thing you read, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think Luton would feel really, really bad at the prospect of, or the suggestion that he had Mm -hmm. done it, and it it doesn't surprise me that he fell into a state of depression.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, due to the lawsuit, the film went unseen for 50 years, until 1993, when it fell into the public domain, when no one renewed its copyright.
0: So the authors didn't even do anything with it?
1: No, they did not. Okay, guys... Uh, And then they died, and then no one renewed the copyright. And, uh, you know, everybody else involved in making the movie had died. So uh, this meant that the ghost ship could now be seen again, uh, starting in the 1990s. And it was released on DVD by Warner Home Video as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection.
0: Yeah, uh, oh, that that bothers me. At least do something with it, guys. Anyways.
1: So modern critics uh, who can now see the film... Uh, Praise it for its lighting, atmosphere, acting, cinematography, sense of claustrophobia, and perceived homoeroticism.
0: Ah. That was in Seventh Victim, too. (laughs) I mean... Like, perceived, but also like, nah, dog, it's there. Yeah. Interesting. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, get yourself a copy of the DVD. I understand it's coming back into print in the States.
1: Yes. uh, Some of the Val Luton films are being released on Blu-ray by Shout Factory in the United States. I don't think they've gotten to Ghost Ship yet, uh, but they have re-released, um, I believe, The Leopard Man, Isle of the Dead, The Body Snatcher, and I think Curse of the Cat People. And there's there's probably plans to like get the rest of them as well, but they're kind of just doing them one at a time right now mm-hmm. onto Blu-ray.
0: Well, that bodes well, because this box set we have is very hard to find otherwise. Yes, Um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Ghost Ship from 1943, directed by Mark Robeson.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Ghost Ship, directed by Mark Robson from 1943. So, Sarah, thoughts? It's a very interesting film. I think
0: they were going for some things. I don't think they quite achieved them. It felt very unfocused.
1: Interesting. I don't know if I would say it felt unfocused in the sense that, like, the movie is, like, about a thing, and definitely, like, wants you to be clear about what the thing it's about is. But I would say that if there was something that felt unfocused, it would be... Themes. Hmm. No. Like, I, I, I don't know. We can talk about this more a bit later. I do feel like the directing and the editing wasn't as tight as it could have been.
0: Yes. It's better than, than in Seventh Victim. Hmm. The mm. editing... In particular. Well. But I would agree with your diagnosis. Let's
1: talk about the story a bit before we dive more into the autopsy.
0: Sure. I mean, that makes it sound... Like, we're we're using, like, I said diagnosis, you said autopsy. Like, this isn't, like, a doctor ship. No. It's a ghost ship.
1: Okay. I mean... No, it also isn't that. <laughs> this is one it's of a the
0: metaphorical ghost shit. This
1: is one of like the least justified titles of any Valentin movie so far.
0: Yeah, like the Leopard Man had a man who owned a leopard.
1: Right, who, seventh victim had the a victim se- who was
0: going to be number seven
1: in a series of victims. Yes, uh, I walked with a zombie had a zombie who the main character walked with, and. um Cat people. Had people who turned into cats.
0: All a person.
1: This would be like if you went to Star Wars and it was like a political drama where like two different celebrities were running for president and at some point in the movie someone was like, it's like some kind of Star War.
0: (laughs) So as Ghost Ship opens, we see Tom Miriam, um, who is a sailor and has just been hired as the third officer on the ship Altair. It's his first posting as an officer on a ship, and he's excited, especially when Captain Will Stone seems interested in mentoring him about authority on a ship. Mm-hmm. The crew seems competent enough, though they are short-handed with one sailor dying right before they leave port, seemingly from a heart
1: attack. Yeah. Weird. Weird.
0: Despite striking up this mentorship relationship with the captain... Miriam is relieved to make a friend who he can just kind of talk with, uh, whose nickname is Sparks, and he is the radio man.
1: Yeah, I think Sparks is a pretty, or was a pretty common uh, nickname for, like, the radio operator on a ship back then.
0: Mm. So Miriam begins to suspect that the captain is negligent when um, there's, like, this big hook on the ship, which I presume is used for crane to lift cargo up.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's a merchant freighter.
0: Yeah, um, and the crew has just finished painting it, and they're like, Okay, well, time to tie this down, because this could kill someone. And the captain is like, No, the paint must dry first.
1: He likes an orderly, neat ship, where everything looks nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, they have to let the hook dry, so it's just swinging back and forth. And uh, it does, like, crash into lifeboats, so that's a little bit of a concern. Um, eventually they do tie it down, but twice Miriam went to the captain to be like, hey, we should really tie this down. And the captain being like, no, listen yeah. to what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Cause it becomes more and more of a problem The like more, um, choppy the waves get. Like yeah. at first it's like, ah, this could really be a problem. And then it's like, oh shit, this is a problem. Yeah.
0: The crew is further shorthanded when a sailor known as the Greek comes down with appendicitis. Um, this was like a neat scene to me. So they have to perform the appendectomy, but there's no doctor on the ship. So they're in the radio room with the Greek on a table and getting directions from a doctor in port. And it never really occurred to me like how else you could do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're performing the appendectomy. The captain loses his nerve about actually doing this. So Miriam steps in and to not hurt the captain's authority, Miriam tells Sparks, who was the radio man who would have seen this, um, says, don't tell anyone that I had to step in. You know, let the
1: captain take the glory, whatever. Yeah, it's interesting, because the captain's justification for, like, why he couldn't do it isn't that he was, like, squeamish about... Blood. Blood or cutting into a dude or anything. It was that, like, he wasn't sure he could do it successfully. And because he's the captain, like, in his mind, his authority depends on the crew like, basically considering him infallible, and so, like, if he failed in such a, like, dramatic fashion, it would be bad for his authority, so better to let the third officer do it.
0: Yeah. So as the Greek recovers, another member of the crew, known as Louis, uh, begins to kind of complain about being shorthanded, and the crew kind of goads him into going and telling the captain his thoughts of, you know, next time we're in port, you really need to hire some guys. The captain... Doesn't seem to really appreciate the advice coming from just some deckhand.
1: I love. He has this
0: like line of like, you know, Louis. Some captains might hold this against you.
1: Yeah, I also love the line later where he calls Louis. um, I think he calls him like a sea lawyer or something. Yeah, because it reminds me of um, in D anD. D Like, when you have a a character who's trying to, like, backseat DM, they're referred to as a rules lawyer. (laughs) Um, Louis, by the way, is played by Lawrence Tierney.
0: Oh, okay. Well, during the next scene, uh, the crew is working with some big chains. I think they're just cleaning them. And um, Louis is down in the locker where all of the chains come down um, and has to, like, help organize how the chains fall down. And these are quite heavy things. Um, And it's quite loud business because the chains keep clinking together. And as the chains are being put down, we see the captain walk by and close the door
1: to the locker. While Louis is inside.
0: Yes. So we get a very intense scene of chains coming down and Louis being crushed. Miriam finds Louis, and the captain just happens to be nearby. And Miriam is shocked by the captain's response because it's very clear that the captain like when we see the captain close the locker, he's just kind of like walking by and closes it as if it's like, ugh, someone left the door open again. But the way he talks about Louis's death to Miriam, it's clear that like he had he had a very low opinion of Louis, and it's probably for the best that Louis
1: is dead and No big loss.
0: No big loss, my authority is maintained.
1: Yeah. He was insubordinate. Like, Miriam's like, hey, a dude just died. And the captain's like,
0: meh. Once they've docked at St. Sebastian.
1: You know, the island from I Walked with a Zombie.
0: Miriam goes to the company rep, and they hold an inquiry about whether the captain is incompetent. Or a murderer. And a murderer. Right. Right. <laughs> But everyone on the crew who comes to kind of testify, they don't know the charge, but they're all like very positive about their experience with the captain. And even the Greek pipes up and says, you know, the captain saved my life with the appendectomy. I believe the captain.
1: Yeah, and it's it's even like the incident with the hook comes up. Like everyone's like, oh yeah, and it was like Miriam who said not to tie up the hook. So if anyone's at fault for that, it's him. And that's only because like... Miriam wanted it tied up, would go to the captain and say, like, hey, we need to tie this up. The captain's like, no, don't. So then he would be the one who would have to come back to the crew and say, no, don't. Um, so it's this sort of interesting buffer that is placed between the captain and the crew mm-hmm. by the officers.
0: Oh, I forgot to mention, um, the previous third officer died in his cabin.
1: From mysterious circumstances. Yeah. Convulsing in his bed. Yeah. Anyways...
0: With the inquiry going nowhere, Miriam plans to remain ashore. Um, during this time, he meets presumably Captain Stone's love interest named Ellen, uh, who gives Miriam a ride up to the hotel. And through that ride, um, Ellen kind of explains, like, you know, you're dressed like Captain Stone. Like,
1: like, basically just that he takes his job and his life too seriously. And, like, you can't just be all about, like, your duty and your authority, you have to have, like, interests in life Mm -hmm. and hobbies and shit, other than being, like, a ship officer.
0: Yeah, you need to get yourself a girl.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Later, we also see Ellen with Captain Stone. She comes on board, and uh, they've known each other for 15 years, so they have a pretty good friendship, and she tells him, you know, I'm a free woman, finally. My divorce went through. Now we can be together. And Captain Stone's like, yeah, that's good for you, Um, he does kind of open up that he does fear that he's losing his mind. Um, He saw captains before him start to lose their sanity, and he is concerned that it's happening to him.
1: What's interesting about this scene is, like, it paints Stone a little bit more three-dimensionally, for one thing, Mm -hmm. uh, where he's not just like, I'm the evil captain! But also the way that this scene dances around some production code stuff, where it's like, yeah, Ellen and the captain can be together now that her divorce has gone through. And, like, also, though, they've been, like, love interest for 15 years or whatever. Like, clearly, before the divorce went through, like, she was having an affair with this captain on her husband. But you can't, like, have adultery in a movie. But, like, hey, the divorce just went through, so there's technically no adultery in this movie. Yeah. Like, Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, back on shore, um, Miriam's walking down the street and sees that some members of the crew have gotten into a bar fight. So he goes in, gets punched out immediately. Um, So despite Miriam's plan to not return to the ship because he's knocked out, the crew members are like, oh, shit, poor Miriam. We'll take him back to the ship for him. He'll thank us in the morning. Yeah. So now with Miriam on board, um, he becomes convinced that the captain is going to kill him for uh, superseding his
1: authority. Yeah, he's, he's stuck back on ship, like, wakes up after they're back on, at sea, and, like, he's quit, he's not the third officer anymore, and he sort of has this weird conversation with the captain where he's like, yeah, I don't want to be here, and you don't want me here, so let's just, like, stay out of each other's way until, like, I can get to port or whatever, and, and the uh,
0: captain's like, you know, what you've done, some captains would hold that against
1: you. <laughs> Yeah.
0: So Miriam's like, yeah, the captain's going to kill me. Uh, But the entire crew is is kind of giving him the cold shoulder, even his good friend Sparks, um, because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to get on the captain's bad side.
1: And it's also, like, in some ways demonstrating the captain's point about authority, because Miriam's no longer in the chain of command. He's just a passenger now. So, like, there's even, like, a brief moment where he's, like, trying to get the steward to, like, change something about, like, his room, and it's, like, doesn't even get a response because, like, you have no authority over these guys, and Mm -hmm. nobody wants to talk to you.
0: Yeah. So, clearly, he has to take matters into his own hands in terms of his own protection, so Miriam goes to steal a gun from the ammunition's locker? Yeah, the weapon's locker. The weapon's locker. And he's caught by Stone, who has a gun on him, and boasts about his authority, like, ha you can't do anything about it, um, and then dares Miriam to try to tell the crew what's going on. And he's like, You'll, it won't work. Miriam has lines that are like, you know, I believe in the fundamental goodness of people. And Stone's like, ha, huh, they can't stand up against me. Why would they stand up against authority?
1: Yeah, Stone's... My, my,
0: my Nazi Germany...
1: Yeah, we'll get to that. Stone's position is that people are cattle Mm -hmm. and are, like, essentially lazy and just, like, don't want to put effort into things. And then there are a few, like, select people who are given authority over them in order to drive them along. Like, that's the pretty much exact language he uses. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And to be fair, like, the crew also doesn't want to, like, commit mutiny, Because, you know, that's a crime.
0: Yeah, that's a big thing. Um, So all of Miriam's attempts to get the crew on his side fail. Then the ship gets a message, like a telegram, from Ellen, uh, asking if Miriam is aboard, because he's otherwise just disappeared from port. And Sparks becomes suspicious when the Cap plans to send the reply that Miriam is not on board. So Sparks goes to Miriam, says, hey, I think you're right, I'm going to bring this to the first officer in the morning. And then as he leaves Miriam's room, uh, the captain is there and just starts walking alongside him. So Sparks thinks quickly and nudges a fellow sailor as they pass and drops the telegram. And the man who picks it up is a sailor named Finn the Mute, who uh, we actually is, like, the first person we meet on the ship. Um, so he's mute. He's played by...
1: Skelton Nags. He's also the narrator of the film, which is kind of a unique uh, thing. But, yeah, he's, he's this mute character, but we hear his inner thoughts, mm-hmm. like, commenting on the story because he's the narrator. Mm-hmm.
0: So Sparks and the captain walk into darkness, and we see Finn pick up the note Apparently he can't read.
1: He can? Like, he must be able to, because otherwise he wouldn't understand the significance of any of it. I think he's lying when he tells that other guy he can't read. Okay. Because otherwise the plot makes no sense.
0: Okay. Well, in any case, he has the telegram. The captain goes back to Miriam and kind of gets him... (laughs) Basically, he's like, Miriam, can you use the radio? We need to send a message. Miriam's like, why can't Sparks do it? He's like... That will be explained in the message. And uh, Miriam and the captain go up to the office. The message is, radio operator lost at sea, and Miriam loses it. He's like, you killed him, you son of a bitch. Uh, Not quite those words, though.
1: Can't say that.
0: (laughs) And they get into some fisticuffs. Um, Obviously, the crew come to restrain Miriam, and they end up tying him to his bed in restraints, and... Miriam gets sedated.
1: Yeah, because from the crew's perspective, they just see, like, this crazy guy yelling and screaming and attacking the captain, and the captain's like, "Ah, I don't know, man, like, (laughs) tie him down, he's nuts, and they're like, yeah. Clearly. So, Finn
0: ends up sharing the telegram with the first officer, then the captain overhears the first officer talking to the crew, like, if this is true, that, like, the captain's trying to hide that Miriam's on board, then maybe everything that Miriam's saying is true. Maybe the
1: boy is right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that becomes the internal monologue of the captain as he goes back to his cabin and just, like, has a bit of a breakdown of, like, the boy is right. I am crazy. I have no authority. And he grabs the biggest knife I've ever seen,
1: like... Just like a big bowie knife.
0: It's, it's like, the size of my forearm. Anyways, he goes to Miriam's cabin, and he's about to just... Stab the heck out of this guy who is sedated and restrained. But then Finn pops out with a knife of his own. And they have quite the violent, bloody knife fight. It's quite gruesome. But Finn wins over the captain.
1: He kills the captain.
0: Yes. Um, In order to get the boat back to port, um, Miriam is reinstated as officer. They get back to San Pedro. Miriam meets Ellen's sister, uh, waiting for him at the docks um, and thereby avoids a ghost-like life as a sailor and a bachelor. Mm-hmm. The end. Yep. Yeah, so some things I, I didn't really mention in the plot summary that are more of like a flavor thing As been said, we get this kind of voiceover internal monologue from Finn um, periodically throughout the movie. Um, and it's in kind of like a whisper and like when we first meet him um we get it the first time and he's whispering about how like i can never fully be known by these people because i cannot speak um but i know their souls by watching them mm-hmm. um he's like the watcher um and we get his voice over every now and then throughout the the movie um but i believe it's still his voice when the captain starts to lose it, and we hear that the boy is right, repeated. I couldn't quite I wasn't, tell,
1: because it's still whispering. I wasn't sure. I don't think it's meant to be, because I think we see the captain, like, walking by several different, like, cabins, and hearing it from a few different voices. Um, and then there is, like, one voice near the end that repeats. But it didn't have the same, like, horse quality. Like, mm. it was, it was quiet, and in the background but it wasn't quiet, and in the background. like because sure, you know, Because sure. Finn's voice has this kind of interesting horse quality to it. I feel like near the start of the movie, Finn is being used as a red herring. Yes. Because Skelton Eggs has a very...
0: Identifiable face.
1: Yes, it's sort of this pockmarked, gaunt face, and, you know, he's got this, like, intense stare, and... And
0: he's sharpening his bowie
1: knife. Yeah, and every time... We see him. It's like something happens, and then the camera will like slowly zoom in on him in the background, being like, it was a ship of death, and and this guy was dead now, but there was definitely going to be more dead guys later, because there's going to be a lot of death on this ship. <laughs> and so you're thinking like, oh, okay. And then he turns out to be the hero, and the whole thing with him being mute and not being able to like talk to other people um, ends up being kind of like a metaphor for... Miriam's situation in the second half of the movie, where he can't go to any of the crew with his concern, because no one will listen to him.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It was interesting as this movie started, because the very first scene, um, Miriam meets a blind man, uh, who is, like, playing um, Blow the Man Down on, like, this little tin piano thing.
1: Yeah, he's, like, a street... Beggar. Yeah, he's a beggar. He's doing street music.
0: And um, he's able to tell Miriam certain things, like... Uh, Oh, you're a sailor who's heading out of port. Um, Oh, actually, you're an officer. I can tell by the sound of your baggage. Hey, your voyage is going to be treacherous. Just this one-off thing. I can understand the horror movies trying to set the mood of, like, prophetic danger, whatever. Mm.
1: Yeah, don't go to Castle Dracula.
0: Yeah. Um, And then the next person Miriam meets is Finn the Mute, who has the internal monologue of, I'm mute, but I know people. I mm-hmm. see things they don't see. So it's like what is this movie talking about disability in some sort of way? It's of not. like a blind man and then a mute man.
1: It just it's just a weird coincidence. It's not an entire ship full of daredevils.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was just like odd to me. Um, usually Luton films are so much more purposeful in mm. what they're doing. Whereas this, like you said, is just a coincidence, uh there's no At least as far as we can tell, like any kind of like meaning behind it, it's just, yeah, it just feels, um, I guess a little sloppy.
1: Yeah, there's there's some things here. It doesn't feel, I, again, I don't know if, you used the word unfocused earlier, and I'm not sure if unfocused is quite the right word, but the word that comes to my mind is uninspired. Mm. In that, like, it's, it's fine, but like, It feels kind of like Luton's running on fumes a little bit here or wasn't quite, like, as enthusiastic about the story as maybe some other projects. Um, There's some stuff in this movie that just seems to be here so that Luton can kind of show off how smart he is. (laughs) Um, Like, Sparks knows Latin. And, like, the stuff with Finn the Mute is, like, it's tied into the story in that, like, you know, Finn rescues him at the end. And it's, like, a metaphor for... Miriam, but that's it right like it's it's kind of a little pretentious right it's like we have this Greek chorus mute narrator who just stands around and comments on the action in a way that only the audience can hear, and it 's also a metaphor for the story like that's that's like a level of kind of artifice and pretension that we didn't like really have in the previous movies. I mean all the loot movies have like certain levels of pretension to them, but
0: but it wasn't so um exposed.
1: Yeah, it wasn't as, as obvious, I guess.
0: This movie, though, is definitely dark, moody. I would say, yeah, it's better edited than Seventh Victim.
1: It's very, like, shadowy, very good cinematography.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it was like a quote from a critic that you shared that it gets across the feeling of being claustrophobic, and I would agree with that. Uh, the way that they're able to get certain angles on the ship, it definitely ties into how tense some of these scenes feel.
1: They definitely make a good use of the ship set. And, like, of course, the ship set was, like, the point. Like, we have this ship, let's use it. But they, they, they get good use out of it. Mm-hmm. The movie does kind of feel like a play in the sense that, like, I could picture watching this on stage.
0: I was thinking that, too. I think it would be the perfect thing to adapt to a play because... You already have that feeling of, like, claustrophobia, and you just have the set on this ship.
1: Yeah, and, you know, while the cinematography is good and has, like, a good shadowy feel, there's not a lot in this movie that's particularly specifically cinematic. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than getting voiceover. But in a play, because there's sort of a level of um, realism that drops away when you're doing theater you could easily have the mute character just turn to the audience and speak and get away with that in theater. So there's not a lot in this movie, unlike previous Luton films, like uh, Cat People, for instance, that's specifically using things you can only do in film. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Do you think that's because our director isn't as experienced as Jacques Tornor?
1: I mean, I don't think so. Because, like, Robson did just fine with Seventh Victim. Yeah. And as an editor, like, I think that makes him more aware of sort of the the unique nature of what can be done in film than, say, if you were uh, just a theater director who became a film director or a writer who became a film director. You know, like, for example, we still get a Luton bus Mm
0: -hmm. in
1: this movie and it's like Miriam goes to bed and he's got the lights off and he's kind of got like his door like booby trapped a little bit in case like the captain comes in to murder him in his sleep and we hear like a crash in the dark and then he like jumps up like gets the light and it's like a cup like fell and crashed and that's it
0: listen i i thought that that was leading towards the ship itself is haunted and is going after Miriam and is possessing the captain because he says things like, "I have moments where I black out." Whatever I thought, because we have Ellen on the ship saying, "Like, yeah, I'm going to take you away from the ship now because mm-hmm. we're going to get married." I thought there'd be danger to her with the ship, not like um that one like Stephen King thing with the car. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that there would be something. There because of the ghost ship title, yeah. Uh, so that's why I was like, "Oh, the cup." Like, "Ooh, is this where it's going?" And then
1: no, no. Um the the title is ghost ship because Ellen gives a speech to Miriam about how if you are a sailor and you have no interests in life on land and your life is just being on ship all the time, you know, then your life becomes empty and you just live your life like you're a ghost and sooner then later, you know, you just have a whole ship of people like that, so it's a ghost ship. Like, that's it. It's it's a metaphor, right? Yeah, there's nothing supernatural going on in this movie at all, um, which is something I might talk a little bit about later. But, um, But, yeah, the thing about this movie is, because it's so much like a play, it lives and dies on the strength of the cast, in my opinion. And luckily it does have a pretty good cast.
0: Yeah, um, what's the guy's name? Richard Dixon?
1: Robert Dix.
0: Robert Dix is super good. His voice is really good. And he does the, like, sane, insane sides of the captain very well. Yes. You know, some people would be like, I'm insane now. Um, but no, he plays it very, I guess,
1: modestly. Well, he just does it. Yeah, he does it he gives a very multi-layered performance that has a lot of psychological realism and is complex. You know, like, you kind of believe him at every step. Like, he's a mentor to Miriam, who's maybe his theories are a little bit off-kilter. But then, like, you can see, like, he doesn't take well to people back-talking, and then suddenly he's dangerous, and then suddenly he's, like, maniacal. But he can also pull back and be with Alan and be like, you know, I'm really worried about myself. Like, I just don't feel, you know, like, I feel like I'm losing control lately. Or he can be with, like, the guy from the company, like, the shipping company, where he's just, like, sitting and having a drink and being like, yeah, you know, we're old friends from the old times. He can do all of these things, and it's really good because it's important, I think, when you're showing something like this and doing a movie like this that's about the things this movie's about, to show that someone like Stone... Yeah, doesn't go around being like, I'll kill you if you don't do what I say, like, all the time. They don't, like, walk into Starbucks and it's like, Venti Mocha or I stab you. Like, <laughs> that's not how people are. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, Dix gives, like, a really good, really good performance. And, you know, you are saying, like, he plays the insanity really well. Yeah. He also plays the, like, sanity Really well. I guess what I'm trying to say is he doesn't come across the way we've had where, like... Lionel Atwill.
0: Who, who you're <laughs> you, like, you can, why
1: would you trust
0: this man? You would
1: never believe that Lionel Atwill was saying, Or, like, the reverse, where we've had those movies where, like, the kindly old man turns out to be the murderer. And it's like, no. Yeah. This is... No, I don't buy it. You know? Like, um...
0: Horror Island.
1: Or Leopard Man, even.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too.
1: Skeleton Eggs is pretty unforgettable. As Finn the Mute, I think. Like, that's definitely a face you'll remember. Yeah. Um, I think he
0: does a pretty good job.
1: Yeah. Edmund Glover uh, is Sparks, and he does a really good job of being kind of, like, pleasant and affable, so that, like, you buy him and Miriam becoming friends.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, it was also, like, shocking when he also gives the cold shoulder to Miriam. Right. I was like, I thought you guys were friends, but it, like... Like, obviously he comes around, but it I don't know. It made me feel what Miriam was feeling. That sense of, like, I guess, betrayal.
1: And it helps because it sells, you know, the point of the movie a little bit more, you know, to wake Miriam up to the reality of his situation. Like, you know, Sparks tells him, like, yeah, you can't be in the radio room anymore, dude. Like, you're not an officer. And, like, I can't be listening to this because I just want to, like get to port, and, like, get paid, and, like, keep my job, you know? And I'm not risking that for you, who is just a rando, you know? Russell Wade plays Miriam, and he's kind of nothing. But he does, I think, have just enough going on for the part to work.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. He feels a little naive, and I think that's what you need.
1: Yeah, he's supposed to be naive, for sure. I think... The other thing that makes the movie work really well is they don't push Stone too far too soon. Yeah. So it's believable that the crew wouldn't turn on him. And it's believable that, like, it's only Miriam who sees what's up because he's seeing the captain in very specific moments at specific times. Like, it's not some sort of, you know, mutiny on the bounty situation where it's Captain Bly being all just totally over the top, you know. um, Yeah. It, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, Miriam's the only one who talked to the captain about the hook or Miriam was the only one who saw the captain down by the locker. Like, you know, so it, it feels believable that the crew wouldn't believe Miriam and, you know, would wa- not want to uh, rock the boat, as it were.
0: Hey. So in in the context setting, you mentioned homoerotic uh, su- subtext in this movie?
1: I mentioned that, like, critics of have- Talked about homoeroticism in this movie. I didn't really pick up anything. Yeah,
0: I didn't pick it up either.
1: I think it's just like they're all men and they're at sea, so like
0: maybe the critics were listening to YMCA a bit too much.
1: I yeah, I don't know. It I there was nothing in this movie that that talked about it or suggested it to me. You know, it is a movie that's entirely men, other than Ellen, but like even that didn't really feel unique. You know, I don't know. Like yeah, it wasn't. It didn't feel like anything. Was there, really.
0: Especially because we saw Seventh Victim, and that is, like, people are saying that it's subtext, and it's like, no, that is the text. Yeah. Like, we know that Luton will put that stuff in very purposefully um, and find ways to hide it very well uh, for the censors, and it's just not here.
1: Yeah, I mean, the point of this movie, too, is to isolate Miriam. From the rest of the crew. There aren't any relationships that he has with anyone in the crew that you could even begin to, you know, ship. Like, he has Except a friendship with his Sparks. He has a friendship with Sparks, but like, it's it's not a Sam and Frodo friendship, you know? It's just a, a work colleague. Yeah. The stop in San Sebastian and the scenes with Ellen I thought were really smart to do because they allowed us to see Stone from other points of view. And kind of understand how he works as a real person
0: mm-hmm.
1: a bit better. Because, yeah, like, I, I'm totally on the same page as you. I think this movie's about Nazis.
0: Yeah, blind loyalty to authority.
1: But I think what's really smart about it is I think it does a really good job of showing you why that happens and how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's you know... Of some- how
0: power corrupts Absolutely. No, I think
1: tons of fucking stories show us how power corrupts, absolutely. I I don't find that to be special about this movie at all. I find this movie to be special because it shows us why people go along with it. Mm. Because so many times you hear, like, the old Nazi excuses, like, oh, I was just following orders and stuff. But, you know, you sit there and you're like, why, though? And I think this movie shows us Why, though? Why, though. Yeah, like, how that works, actually. Because... The movie isn't really about power, it's about authority. It's about the fact that, like, Stone is the top of the chain of command, and, like, when they're at sea, like, you know, there's a scene where they talk about, like, at sea a captain's more powerful than, like, a king or the president. And it's kind of true in a way because the buck stops there. There's yeah. no one else you can go to, you know, and it's a chain of command, you know, so the first officer follows the captain's orders and then the men follow the first officer and on and on down this chain. Again, there are like levels of separation between people, you know, by the time you get the order, you're so far removed from the captain that, you know, you don't know what state of mind the captain was when he gave that order. You just have to follow it. You know, you, you have to, because you have to trust that that's the right thing to do. Cause you, maybe you'll all die if you don't give that, you know, do that. When we see movies, where the person in power is, like, a little bit unhinged, right? Or even this movie. You know, if you're the guy getting it right from the captain, you might be able to see the glint of crazy in the captain's eyes and be like, ah, I don't know about that order, captain. But if you're ten men down the chain, you don't know. You just have to follow it, because you don't have time to question things. And we can see the rest of the crew who are like, yeah, I don't want to get involved, because this is just my job, and I have no way of knowing if Miriam's right, you know? You can't fault the crew for not going with Miriam because they don't know he's the hero of a movie. (laughs) So there's nothing to say that Miriam isn't just crazy or, you know, whatever. I really liked that. That Stone has, like, a philosophy about power and authority that you can believe someone would have after, like, years of being a ship captain. Yeah. He talks about how basically he has the right to do kind of whatever he wants with the life of the crew, Because it's his job to keep them safe.
0: Yeah, which, like, because we watch a lot of Star Trek, and we're watching, like, Voyager right now, where Janeway's always like, you know, I'm responsible for getting my crew home. It was interesting to see that belief twisted a little bit.
1: Yeah, because what he says does make logical sense, it's just wrong. Because, like, his his point is, like, your lives are in my hands it's my responsibility to see everyone home safely. So because your lives are in my hands, I kind of have the right to do with your lives as I choose. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and if you disrupt my authority, like you're putting everyone's life at risk. So therefore I need to get rid of this weak link in the chain.
1: Yeah, precisely. And like, it's believable, you know, stone's beliefs. And when he talks about like, yeah, you know, people are lazy and they need people to drive them. Like if, as Ellen says, you know, Stone has no life outside of being on ship. You can see how someone might develop that theory of humanity if all they ever see is the chain of command on a ship. Yeah. Right? And the scenes with Ellen and the scenes where he is on San Sebastian help us see Stone when he's just being a person. Like, oh, this guy has a girlfriend. This guy has a friend at the company who he, you know, hangs around and shoots the ship with. This guy kind of realizes on some level that, like, something's wrong with him, right? He he knows that he's kind of going beyond the pale a little bit because he tells Ellen, like, yeah, I'm afraid that I'm going crazy and stuff. And, like, that's just all so much more believable and multi dimensional than just kind of, you know, your standard, like, movie Nazi who's just like, ah, you know, evil for the sake of evil. So I, I really appreciated all of that. I do think, you know, you said you thought, the editing here is better than in Seventh Victim. It just felt better constructed. It's better in a traditional Hollywood sense that like, it's not doing anything experimental. It's not doing anything weird. It's just going along. But I think it's a failure in another way, Mm. which is that the editing in Seventh Victim, because it was like a little disjointed, worked for the story of that movie because that's a movie where you're supposed to be like, what the fuck is even going on? <laughs> Whereas sure. the this movie, what you need to get across is like the level of tension and that feeling of hopelessness and being trapped with really no way out. And I felt like the editing and the directing never quite got there. It yeah. never quite for me got to the level where it should. There was something a little bit kind of listless about the editing and about the directing where there just wasn't quite the energy that there should have been. And I think the performances were all pretty good. So I feel like the movie needed like tighter editing and like maybe like more music or more sound design or something. But it didn't have that Luton feel that we've had in past Luton movies of like the screws kind of slowly turning. Mm -hmm. And you could tell at the points in the movie where that should be happening. You got the sense of like, okay, I get what they're trying to do but it just never quite got to the mm-hmm. pitch, the intensity that it really should have had for my money.
0: I would agree with that. I will say I did like that for the most part, this movie doesn't have much music. And when they're on the ship, most of the music comes from the crew singing songs. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that because it it kind of underlined, we're right here with them.
1: Yeah. And we're alone on this ship. Yeah. Um, it is used for, for great effect when the captain goes to stab Miriam, tied up Miriam, and you just hear the crew, like, outside singing. It's like a good, like, contrast. Yeah. So, are you ready to talk about how this isn't a horror movie, though?
0: Well, yes. Um, I think Luton movies do tend to ride a line of horror versus psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because of the way that it talks about... Like many of these films have talked about psychology of the characters and questioning what it what are we actually afraid of here?
1: Yeah, and also like just the way that Luton movies are more about what you don't see than what you see and things like that.
0: Yeah, and that's in line with the genre. Like just look at Caligari.: mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, so for me, my opinion, this is not a horror movie, though. Okay. And this is a thriller. This is 100 percent a thriller. Um, This is Shadow of a Doubt on a boat. (laughs) You know, we have one character who knows that one of the other characters is a crazy murderer and, like, can't tell anyone else. We're trapped with, you know, a madman. We have nowhere to go. We can't convince anyone else to help us. Uh, But at the end, you know, we ultimately fight and defeat the madman and things work out just fine. Like, this movie has a hero and a villain instead of... monster and victims um and i think maybe if this movie had focused more on how trapped miriam is and you know focused more on the idea of like yeah there's nowhere you can go but it didn't quite do that because it wanted to be about stone and about nazi germany and about like authority and power and these other things and it doesn't come across as horror. It doesn't feel like the, if we harken back to the first episode where the goal of horror is to elicit fear in the audience. It never felt like this movie was trying to really do that. It felt like the movie was trying to get us on the edge of our seats and get like, you know, the hairs on the back of our neck to stand up and get us like excited, which is what thrillers do, but not quite like scared. And the fact that the movie ends with like a knife fight where then, like, we stab the dude, and then he dies, and then that's the end. Um, Especially, you know, because you talk about the Luton movies riding the line between horror and thriller. Yeah. So I'm not going to judge Ghost Ship versus, like, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in terms of trying to judge whether it's horror. But I'm going to judge it against Seventh Victim or uh, Cat People. Yeah. And there's nothing like, you know, the scene of um, Gene Brooks being sat down in front of a glass of poison and being like, no, you have to drink it. Like, there's nothing horrific like that in this movie. This felt, to me, you know, if you were looking at, if you're doing, like, a DNA analysis of this movie and trying to figure out, like, who the father was, like, this movie has more in common with, like, Journey Into Fear.
0: That's just because they're using the same set, the, <laughs> the same boat sets. <laughs>
1: Well, and also the director of this movie edited Journey Into Fear. <laughs> but no, they're like both about a dude on a boat with a guy trying to kill him who can't convince anyone else on the boat to help him.
0: Sure. Okay, I, I'll i go with that. I was feeling like this was still horror, just that the source of fear or the horror was a bit muddled because of a, a feeling of a lack of focus. But you've made some really good points, so I'll agree with you.
1: Oh, Okay. I was thinking that was going to be a real problem, so... Good.
0: (laughs) Well, folks, um, if you would still like to check out the list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, and you'll find Ghost Ship on the miscellaneous part of the list. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line on Tumblr through our Ask box. Or you can also email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore scream scene.
1: scream scene. updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you'd like to give the show a hand, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services um, because that helps other people find the show. Another way you can help the show out is by telling a friend about us. You can share the show on social media or just talk about us around the water cooler if uh, that seems like the kind of thing that you would do if it is the kind <laughs> ki-
0: And hopefully they don't give you the cold shoulder cuz you've also just accused,
1: accused your, your boss of, of being murder a murderer. yeah if it seems like the sort of thing you would do to help us out financially then you can head over to patreon.com/screamscene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month Patrons who donate at higher levels get access to rewards like bonus audio and horror short stories that I write. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes on horror-adjacent movies like The Hunchback of Notre Dame or... Like the 90s one? No, I meant like the Lon Chaney one. Ah. Uh. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week... We are headed over to Paramount Pictures, where we have not been... For a while. ...a long time. Like, Murders in the Zoo, maybe, was our last Paramount movie? Not 100% sure about that. But, um, it's The Uninvited. It's a story about a haunted house. Oh. Stars Ray Milland, you know, from Dial M for Murder. And, uh, it's in the Criterion Collection.
0: Oh, dang. Cool. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night, where you will be invited to listen along. Bye. Bye.